Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco at the Commonwealth Club and also our podcast and our radio audiences. It's my great pleasure to introduce Marcus Kunalakis, who is going to be speaking on Spin Wars and Spy Games, Global Media and Intelligence Gathering, a topic that is extremely timely and unfortunately probably will be timely for the rest of our lives. Thank you very much, Marcus. Thank you. Thanks, George. Well, thank you, George, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club. Tonight is a topic that looks at journalism and how it intersects with intelligence gathering and with diplomacy. And it's something that's a fairly touchy topic because most of my colleagues, journalists, don't admit to the fact that this actually exists, that the relationship actually exists. So I'm going to weave a little story as we go through the evening and and bring to you what I was found, what I found in the, my, in the process of my research. But to give you a sense of why I have any credibility in this particular field, I'll give you a little bit of my background, which is in journalism. In fact, as I was walking over here from my office in North Beach, I walked by the site of where I did my very last general assignment reporting, which was 101 California. And the reason it was my last reporting assignment was, is because it was such a horrific event that I decided no longer to uh, be allowed to be assigned anything that the news desk decided to send me to. Uh, many of you are here. I see you nodding. Uh, San Franciscans who are familiar with that event. Uh, as you probably recall, there were bodies being brought out of the building after a, a massive assault with a, with a weapon that actually uh, killed a fair number of people. Uh, that was the end of my general assignment reporting. I haven't given journalism up. I actually went on to become a publisher of a magazine and uh, still am the foreign affairs columnist for the McClatchy chain of newspapers, which those of you who are familiar with the California relationship to Mal uh, McClatchy, there are all the bees in the middle of the state, including uh, San Luis Obispo, Merced, and a few other places. My editors are in Miami and my uh, offices are in Washington, D.C. This is truly a 21st century journalistic enterprise. Um, I think it's also relevant to note that this Commonwealth Club was founded by journalists. There was a guy named um, Edward F. Adams, who worked for the San Francisco Chronicle. It was back in 1903, and he was known as the agricultural editor. He founded it along with somebody else named John Young, who was the managing editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. And so the history of this organization is actually rooted in journalism as well. You probably know that there are not many agricultural editors these days. I was a foreign correspondent. There are also very few of us these days, but I'll talk about this as we get into the story. Um, and the story is really a, a two-part story. It's the story of the demise of Western journalism, while at the same time, it's the rise of journalism in other parts of the world. And, um, and I have had this experience overseas in that my first reporting assignment was actually in Sweden. I used to be uh, a correspondent at Radio Sweden. We would broadcast into the Soviet Union. They would try to jam us, but because Sweden was so close, it was very hard to jam our antennas. Um, 
I came back to San Francisco and started working locally. Uh, back then, there was something called the Fairness Doctrine that allowed for my radio program to be on KCBS every week. It was a world affairs program. Um, and then I went on to continue doing journalism, including in other countries, in Germany, where I worked at the Süddeutsche Zeitung, and then I was also at television station ZDF. Following that, I was in the late 80s. I uh, took a job with Newsweek in Rome. And uh, by late 80s, I mean at the end of the Cold War. And so I spent a fair amount of time uh, from that moment following and reporting on the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall and all the subsequent events. Um, there was a book written about some of my exploits with a colleague named Peter Lawfer called um, Iron Curtain Rising. Uh, and then uh, because of that, my trajectory changed and I moved into Eastern Europe, I, Central Europe, as they like to refer to themselves. But what we referred to it as Eastern Europe during the Cold War. Uh, I moved to Czechoslovakia, where I lived for a couple years, covering all of the region. And then when the coup hit in Moscow in 1991, of August, August of 91, I moved up to Moscow and then took a job with NBC. So I was with Newsweek, and then I went to NBC Mutual News uh, in out of the USSR. Um, so there's a whole lot of other bio, but that's really the journalism relevant part of the bio. I'm now a scholar at the Hoover Institution and, um, and spent some of my time uh, in the last few years researching uh, what is, uh, how journalism and politi politics, really foreign policy, intersect. And that is how I came up with the premise of this book, Spin Wars, Spy Games, Global Media and Intelligence Gathering. And uh, as I say, it's, it's really uh, the story of two concomitant events and actually interrelated events, the demise of Western journalism, which we attribute to the collapse of the business model, the inability of the news, the news business to make the full transition into, uh, into the digital age. And we're talking about news institutions that have existed for at least for some for century or longer. Um, and then at the same time, moves by adversarial nations, China and Russia specifically, to fill the vacuum of that journalism when it comes to journalism overseas. There are two very expensive parts of journalism in the United States. One of them is um, investigative reporting, something that I uh, equate to uh, wildcatting. You dig a whole lot of wells, and every once in a while you hit pay dirt and you get a story. And the reward is if you're really good with your investigative story, you get sued. So it never really works out for the news organizations, but they have a public service commitment to doing these types of stories or had because it is a highly expensive uh, and requires not only resources of, of personnel, but time and, 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 and uh, really uh, cash to be able to pursue some of this stuff. Uh, the second very expensive part of uh, journalism, as we've uh, grown to know it, is foreign corresponding. The expense of having a bureau in another country and then seating it with a journalist uh, can, can run around half a million dollars, much, much more if it is a conflict zone uh, where you can actually end up in the millions. And so, as you can imagine, as the downward pressures on the business of journalism uh, affected newsrooms, the first things often to go were, the, um, were those uh, doing investigative reporting and, of course, foreign corresponding and foreign bureaus. So uh, I approached my story 
by saying, well, what happens? I, I, I'm not going to touch on the investigative reporting stuff. There's some things being done in the United States, some that were seeded from San Francisco itself, and some that have uh, quite a bit of support within San Francisco with the Center for Investigative Reporting, with what the, Sander, uh, what the Sanders uh, family did in terms of establishing uh, ProPublica in the United States. So I'll focus on the foreign corresponding side. And, and my question really was, what happens to a polity and to a citizenry and to a nation when there are fewer and fewer foreign correspondents? I looked around and I saw bureaus shutting down, whether it was for um, our local paper or even for the paper down south in Los Angeles. Uh, and and the, the question seemed sort of self-evident to me. There seemed to be a natural answer that, you know, the less you have an informed citizenry when you have fewer people out in the field collecting stories well, then the less informed citizenry has a less, an, an, a less of an ability to make informed decisions at the ballot box and to uh, get the type of representatives that they want to pursue the types of policies that the citizenry feels is important. It sounded okay until I really started researching what was going on in the field. And, and it turned out that there are now more foreign correspondents than there have ever been in the history of the world. The difference is they're not Western foreign correspondents. So my question really then had to change. It wasn't just what happens when there are no Western foreign correspondents to return our own perspectives to ourselves within our news organizations. It also became what happens when other countries, adversarial nations, are looking to the world to collect, analyze, and deliver the types of information that we base our information on, that we base our decisions on. And um, what I found was troubling. Um, but to really understand how troubling, I had to take a deep look at what it is that we, and I say we because, as I mentioned, I was a foreign correspondent, what, what my colleagues and I used to do. Well, of course, we were responsible for reporting the news and sending it back home and having everyone at home listen to it. But there is also an ancillary aspect to what it is that foreign correspondents do, but never or rarely admit to. And the book that I wrote has a number of instances where I was able to speak to my colleagues and they were able to admit what it is that we also do, often informally, but sometimes formally. And they are two things. One is we engage in diplomatic activities. Usually informally, sometimes formally. Secondarily, we're involved in intelligence gathering. Again, mostly informally, sometimes formally. And that intelligence, as I'll point out, uh, is what we refer to as open source intelligence that then is used by uh, decision makers and policymakers to inform themselves as they try to decide what kinds of policies they make. But let me start with the diplomatic side of what it is we do. So as a foreign correspondent um, or a bureau, you spend a lot of time on the ground uh, or used to in the case of Western foreign correspondence. And that means that you build networks, you have relationships, you are constantly on the ground looking at stories, and you're finding out really uh, what makes a nation run, who the power players are. And that is fairly important 
data that you're collecting as you put together your analysis for a story to send back to the United States and say, look, this is what's going on in Yugoslavia, or this is what's going on back then, or this is what's going on in the Soviet Union. And uh, in the process, you end up finding a lot of things that don't end up in your stories. So first and foremost, so you, you find out um, that there are people who want to talk to you in your uh, capacity as a journalist, but don't recognize that there's a difference between you, a journalist, and the nation where you reside and come from and for, or for the institutions for which you work. And so what often would happen for uh, many of these journalists, me included, is someone would say, uh, you would have a high-level interview, sometimes with someone as high as the prime minister, and they'd say, please give this information to your country. <laughs> and you as a journalist are suddenly put into a position where you are performing the role of an intermediary. Now, it may sound odd, but actually there are cases where this is actually, uh, where this was performed back in the 60s. For example, a guy named John Scally, who was an intermediary between the USSR and the United States during the Cuban Missile Crisis, was actually a key element of the negotiations and information and diplomatic relationship between those two nations as they were trying to solve this very important um, and critical uh, tension uh, between the two nations that brought us to the brink of nuclear war. Um, the examples I've been involved in are less uh, critical, but nonetheless important. And, uh, and as you go through the book, you'll see that there are numerous other examples. In fact, uh, the appendix of the book looks at an instance where a colleague of mine and I were engaged in actually intervening uh, as, as U.S. ships were steaming to Haiti. Uh, we were able to intervene because he was on the ground for CBS, had just had an interview with Raul Cedras, General Cedras, and um, Cedras intimated to him, actually told him that he was not looking for this confrontation and he wanted a channel to the leadership in the United States. But we had no diplomatic representation on the island at the time. So Terry Phillips, his name is in the book, so I'm happy to share it, um, uh, called me in San Francisco. I happened to have uh, a friend who I had studied with in Germany who was working for Lee Hamilton at the time, congressman and head of the, at the time he was the uh, chair of the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee in Congress. Congressman Hamilton then called down to my colleague and they were able to verify some of the information that he was sharing from Cedras. And um, that set in motion a whole lot of diplomatic moves in Washington, D.C. that ended up with Colin Powell going down to Haiti and, in fact, um, alleviating the tension so that we weren't, in fact, in a confrontation with this country and, and so that our Navy ships were uh, kept from uh, having this landing that was going to be uh, a conflict. Um, it's just one of many examples. It's the one I know probably best because it's one I lived through. Uh, but you can imagine, of course, what happens when suddenly these resources, these diplomatic, informal diplomatic resources are no longer on the ground. If there are no Western foreign correspondents or very few Western foreign correspondents or the ones that are there are non-resident but happen to be just those who are parachuting in for a very short amount of time because there happens to be an American angle on the story, then what happens when suddenly those capacities, those resources are no longer on the ground? The second part of that question, of course, is I said at the beginning is what happens when those resources are then replaced by those who 
have a much closer relationship to their state, China and Russia. Um, are, I'm not sure if uh, many are familiar with the term soft power in political science. It's kind of the, uh, it's a loose term for uh, having, um, having the ability to influence another nation. Many people who look at these Chinese uh, and Russian news organizations, and uh, many of you are, have heard of them, Russia Today, RT, or CGTN, which is Chinese Global Television News, used to be known as CCTV. Um, many of the arguments are that these organizations are soft power organizations. But as I have just uh, illustrated with the diplomatic question, they often perform what we can consider hard power uh, and and that means not just guns and troops, but actually individuals who are on the ground who are able to perform functions that are in, in that perform some uh, a role much much different from the soft power ideational the idea of uh, of soft power. So on the intelligence gathering, and um, let me just say on the diplomatic side, you know, it's not just the ability to uh, be an intermediary. There's the ability also to negotiate, as John Scali did, but also you have access to fairly senior members of governments. And within those interactions, they're able to be informed about the perspective from an American journalist perspective of what an American audience or an American polity is interested in. So whenever I would go in, for example, or any of my colleagues would go in, they're trying to feed something to their American audiences, and that American audience um, will reflect to the journalist what it is he will ask, the series of questions, which then allows those leaders to understand what the perspectives, concerns, and interests are of that country. If it hasn't been made clear through their uh, formal diplomatic channels, it's reflected through the journalistic interactions that are done uh, on the ground. So this is the next part, which is probably the more tricky uh, question, which is the intelligence gathering. And I say it's tricky because it is a um, charge that is often leveled at American journalists whenever they're in places uh, where the foreign government or the uh, individuals who are on the ground who um, perceive of the United States as an adversary will often level at that journalist. Um, Jason Rezaian, for instance, of the Washington Post, was held for over a year, well over a year, in Iran, and charged, and in fact found guilty of, being a spy. We were able to get Jason back because of some high-level negotiations and diplomacy, but the, re but the reality is other nations see uh, Western journalists as an extension of state power. They see us as having a, a hand-in-glove relationship with the State Department, the Defense Department, the CIA, and this is just their assumption and, per and perception. And it's understandable in part because that is the relationship that they have with their foreign correspondents because they are state employees. We have a very different tradition, uh, as everyone here should know, uh, but it doesn't mean that the work that we do doesn't help those nations in, in the West understand those other countries because the role that we perform and the one that is disappearing is that of intelligence gathering from an open source perspective. And that means 
journalists don't get called up by the CIA and asked to uh, go report on a particular thing or take photographs of a particular area. Uh, but rather, Langley reads the same thing you read. If you read the Washington Post, then chances are Langley is clipping the Washington Post on a daily basis and looking at who the people are that are involved and engaged and, and interacted with. Um, if you read the New York Times, chances are that CIA, DOD, the uh, Congress, embassies are all reading the same thing and putting it into their analytical framework as they decide what it is they have to um, do as policymakers, as as diplomats on the ground, and uh, and it and and I have to say that it actually is it rates sort of high on their list in terms of the types of of data that they collect. They have their own sources, and those are often different. But journalists have a lot more freedom in the field. They don't have. If you're familiar with what's going on today, because of the dangers and the nations that uh, that our diplomats are engaged in, and this is even more true after our local um, uh, diplomat Chris Stevens was uh, was killed in Benghazi. Um, Many of the embassy personnel are further behind the wire these days, and so they're less able to get into the ground and into the field to collect the types of information that journalists are still risking their lives to go out and collect. And so that data that the journalists are collecting has become even more important. Um, And it's not just the reports themselves. When you're a foreign correspondent in the West, chances are that you're sharing informally your information with any number of other people I, for one, would regularly go to cocktail parties uh, in um, at embassies, um, and invariably you'll talk to someone who may be a political officer who would be interested in finding out where you were and what you saw, because not everything that you have learned gets into your news report. You have uh, you collect your news um, uh, your notebook. And you fill your notebook with interviews from people all around and you're, and you're learning all types of things and they're pointing you to somebody else. And some of that, maybe 5 to 10% of that gets into your news story, which means there's about 90% that still stays in your notebook. Um, some of which maybe you'll share at a cocktail party, but not wantonly. It's part of our job oftentimes to try and figure out what we can get that's extra for our stories. So there's a little bit of horse trading that often goes on. Nonetheless, with the disappearance of the foreign correspondent core, that capacity disappears. Um, There's also something that's very typical for Western foreign correspondents, uh, and uh, you'll see this even today when when news organizations, whether they're on television or or, uh, print news organizations do, is they'll do an an in-brief and an out-brief, which means sometimes they'll brief themselves prior to going into a country uh, with some state... uh, official, uh, whether it be at the State Department or elsewhere, who says, oh, you're going to this country, let me tell you, this is what's going on. And the journalist really appreciates this, in part for his own safety or her own safety, to learn where the threats might be, where they need to be careful. Uh, also to get an overview of the politics and of the situation, the economics of a country, what it is that uh, these uh, these institutions are interested in, and also to understand basically what they're going to have to deliver to their audiences. And oftentimes, uh, we would go to an embassy when we first land. Usually, there are two stops. One would be the embassy, just to get sort of the official line of what it is that's going on in a country. But also, uh, because... Uh, so, in the second uh, 
folks you would often visit are the foreign correspondents who are sort of based in those countries because they have all this, all these resources and this information that we had talked about previously. And so, um, and then on the way out, you again would often stop at the embassy to try and see if there was something you missed and you would have this exchange and sometimes horse trading of information that I mentioned before. Again, uh, no foreign correspondence, no collection, no open source intelligence, no diplomatic engagement, and certainly no cocktail parties. Um, and I'll give you an example of uh, one of the, uh, there's an example of this in the book, uh, and many of the correspondents with whom I spoke asked for anonymity um, to share these stories because some of them are still in the field and they're still working, not because they had engaged in a formal relationship in intelligence gathering, although there, as I say, have been plenty who've done this in the past. And you can look to people like George Orwell or even Gloria Steinem, who was an employee of the CIA, who was a journalist and then also performed certain functions for the intelligence agencies. But when I was in um, Czechoslovakia, there was a, a journalist who had found uh, a credible threat in the town of um, Pilsen, which is where we get Pilsner, Pilsen Urquell. And so uh, it's an important town in that, um, and Madeleine Albright tells the story, uh, when they went there at one point after, uh, after the opening of the Czechoslovak uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the changes in Eastern Europe, uh, there was someone she had seen there who had uh, a, an American flag stuffed underneath their bed for years, and he brought it out for the celebration when when, uh, Madeline, when the Secretary of State had come, and it had 48 stars on it. And so it was a very moving moment for her. Well, um, the United States uh, was going to have a celebration in this particular town, uh, and um, this colleague of mine had found out that... Uh, in an unrelated incident, um, a few months a few months prior, there had been um, license plates taken from some of the embassy vehicles, and and this is important because you will even see it in San Francisco. Diplomatic plates sometimes look differently, and in other countries that provides you the ability to go through checkpoints and do any number of things. So. Uh, in this one instance, front plates were taken as opposed to back plates. So half the plates were gone. But as a, a police person looking at this uh, would then just see that there were plates, didn't really register whether or not the front plates and the back plates were the same, uh, especially in the late uh, 80s, early 90s. This is, by the way, when um, someone with a very strong relationship to the Commonwealth Club was the ambassador, Shirley Temple Black, our, our local Shirley Temple Black. Um, and um, this information was eventually passed along. It never made it into one of the news stories. It was passed along to the embassy that, in fact, uh, an organization was considering uh, setting some explosives or some form of attack into a vehicle during the visit of Shirley to Pilsen. That, um, that visit was canceled, and um, it's unclear whether or not it was a credible threat, but the information gathered by this journalist was used to, in fact, uh, in an actionable way to prevent a potential disaster. So, again, no Western correspondence. You know the rest. 
You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. So what's happened in the meantime is that, as I said, those capacities that are now gone from the West are being filled by Russia and China. And it's not a secret. Uh, China, CGTN, uh, Xinhua, which is a large news organization similar to our Reuters or our AP, and China Daily, which is a newspaper equivalent to one of our national papers, um, are spreading... Uh, throughout the world to fill these areas where Western journalists are now abandoning and matching them where they are still exist. Um, in Washington, D.C., uh, so CGTN, for example, which is the television network, has bureaus in three places, three b- basic centers. They have bureaus all around the world, over 160 countries. Uh, but currently, uh, have three major centers so that they can uh, broadcast 24 hours a day. One is in Beijing, of course. The other is in Nairobi, and the third is in Washington, D.C. They recently, uh, well, I'll talk about the one in in London in a short while, but um, uh, in those bureaus, um, which have a very tight relationship with their embassies, tighter than the ones that Western organizations have with their embassies, which are much more informal, as you heard, um, they are... uh, able to pursue state agendas. And that's not merely in terms of the intelligence gathering diplomacy, but in terms of being able to actually promote from a, from an, uh, an idea perspective, from a journalistic perspective, the goals and interests of the state within their media. It's important in Africa, for instance, where they are a fairly large player uh, on television. In some cases, they've hired some of the more credible journalists from those countries to be their anchors so that you're able to have someone who, who's familiar. Uh, and by the way, Similar things have been done in the United States with RT, where you can see Larry King or other places um, where you have formerly employed uh, Western journalists who are appearing within uh, the broadcasts of these countries. It's a problem, of course, because you have an editorial layer that is responsive to the leadership of these countries, whether it's in Russia or in China. Uh, But uh, between the editorial layer, so you have your top, which is the leadership and the direction and the strategy of a state. Then you have your editorial layer. So in CGTN, it means that those editors are from uh, China. And then you are able to employ, which was never true in the past, a bunch of Western journalists who no longer um, have jobs because of the demise of the Western news organization and the business collapse who are unemployed and underemployed. In fact, in London, when uh, CGTN was looking to establish a bureau, they had a um, they had positions, and I'm trying to see where that number is here. They had, I think they were, here it is. They were, um, they were advertising for 95 positions. Is that right? Yeah, 95 jobs. Um, and this is in Chiswick in London, about a year and a half ago. And, uh, Maybe it was a year ago, sorry. And for those 95 positions, remember, there are very few jobs within Western journalism. There were 6,000 applicants in London. Now, that's fine, 
in some ways, you know, everyone should have the right to gainful employment and earning a living. Uh, but what we have to understand is that these journalists, many of them, come to these positions with established networks, with full Rolodexes, with analytical understanding, the types of things that were never true of the journalists who would hear during the previous, the pre-Cold War era, during the Cold War, pre-collapse, where, in fact, they were oftentimes flying blind, sometimes limited to uh, travel within 25 miles of the capital, um, and unable to do the types of analysis uh, that Western journalists have been trained to do. There's a there's one more part of it. It's that Western journalists come from a tradition um, that is adversarial to power structures. So I think we're all familiar with the idea that we watch television, we see a press conference, and the journalists and the person standing there taking the incoming are not on the best of relationships. I mean, they may talk to each other, but the questions are often quite pointed and looking to undermine in many questions or find the cracks in the arguments. Uh, it works well when you're trying to have check on power, which is the important part of our own um, journalistic structure. It's part of the idea of the First Amendment. Not so good when these individuals are working for foreign nations and trying to attack from within um, their own uh, power structure and to try and find and to uh, to uh, practice those uh, types of um, that type of journalism, uh, especially when it is directed by an editorial layer that is responsive to state leadership in a foreign adversarial nation. So um, I am going to wrap it up here because I think it's always great to take a lot of uh, questions on these things. I hope it has uh, instilled and inspired some questions. Um, yes, and I think I'll just leave it there and we'll take whatever questions may come. George, are you going to moderate here? And Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd like to remind our radio and online audiences that they're listening to Marcus Kunalaka speaking about uh, the shift in the global media uh, that has taken place over the last couple of decades. Very interesting, that, uh, everything that you spoke of, and uh, it should make a movie out of it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, fake news is the, the big deal here. We hear about it all the time, all the time. Has there always been fake news? I mean, I'm assuming so. Was percentage-wise? So... Um I'll tell you the the concept, and and our our colleagues in uh, at the University of Oxford who do a lot of research into this type of uh, news, which is fabricated and intended to have a different intention, is referred to oftentimes as junk news. And um, what's happened? What the difference is? There's always been. Uh, misleading stories uh, intentionally planted either through leaks or otherwise, but the proliferation of news organizations and non-news organizations in particular in the social media sphere where they don't claim to be news organizations but rather pur purveyors of social interaction and just data that's being shared uh, have proliferated beyond anything anyone could have imagined a few years ago. And so the channels for this have uh, have just grown so dramatically that there is more there is more room for this type of misinformation to find its way to a broader spectrum of of a populace. So that's 
part of the issue. Um, you also have, at the same time, the same uh, problem that we talked about at the very beginning, which is the demise of the institutional structures that you, you and we used to all rely on to, to sort of vet the facts that we all shared on a regular basis. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not that old. So I recall, you know, uh, three television networks. I recall um, not that many newspapers, uh, but a number of new newspapers that were competing within one one city in San Francisco is the Chronicle and the Examiner. And the, some of the other ones were way before me. But you could also have other papers that were able to then check against each other and who were actually competing for factual uh uh, data to be able to then you know go through their their journalistic um, exercises, but that's no longer the case, right? We've moved to a case where we now have three and a half newspapers in the United States, and I would maybe somebody would analyze this differently, but I you know we have the New York Times, we have the Washington the Wall Street Journal, we have the Washington Post, and the half which is slowly growing into a full paper right now at a national level is the Los Angeles Times. We'll see how that goes. They're putting a lot of effort into building their brand and building their journalism. It's certainly good on a regional basis, but uh, will it achieve that national level of success? Is that we're still that the jury's still out on that one? Um, so that's a dramatic difference from what it was just a few years ago. So those whom we relied on for years to curate and to sift and to filter what was true and what was junk. And whom we we relied on um, on our in our on our daily basis for the conversations that we were having with our neighbor and our community have mostly gone away, and so uh, the field is rife, and uh, and there's a it's a it's a fertile it's fertile territory to plant those bad seeds, uh, you know, in in society at this point those bad informational seeds. And they will find, and they will grow. And of course, the final part of this is that they're also, thanks to uh, the proliferation of automation, uh, primarily I talk about bots now, the ability to, in fact, overwhelm systems, particularly social media systems, with this type of junk news, uh, making it appear as if that's the only thing that you are, so that, so that if there is good news or, or more factual-based news and, and news that has been uh, pre-vetted and, and traditionally acceptable, it gets buried in this mountain of bot-driven and, at times, uh, bad actor-driven um, junk news. Hello. Hello. I, I keep getting the feeling that we are, our politicians are less and less qualified to be in the positions that they are in. And now that I'm hearing the background story, is that because... We've lost journalists that are actually running things because of their higher level of intelligence and ability. And the politicians are now exposed for what they really are. And that's doesn't leave me as a happy camper. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, let me preface this answer by saying my wife is a politician. <laughs> and so I'm partial to politicians, and I think they're pretty smart sometimes, especially my wife. Um, but I, I think 
I would fra- reframe, reframe this and say that there has been an ecosystem of journalists and politicians and citizens who all sort of work together in our social, in our society. And, and they made up this social fabric and this community interaction and this ability to create policies. And that's fractured right now. It's fractured for some of the reasons I just mentioned on the question of junk news, but it's fractured also because there's interference from abroad. And and this interference from these two bad actors, one in particular, the Russian, which we read about on a regular basis. Some of us don't believe that it's true, but I, I think if there's one thing that came through in the Mueller report, it's that, in fact, Russia did intervene and that there was um, and there continues to be intervention by the Russians to affect the way that we perceive of our society and to take and to exploit those uh, fractures, social fractures, our political fractures, and to exploit them by exacerbating those uh, those conflicts and fractures that exist within our society. So I think all those things are working together to, and then you take away the journalists part of the equation, which were, you know, journalists were important to uh, both inform the public, whether it was on domestic issues, but primarily on dom- on foreign issues. Um, that's gone. That's more or less gone. Um, it is... Uh, like I said, we're exposed to the political mind, which is nowhere near as qualified as the journalistic mind. Well, I think the... the so to, again, sort of rephrase it, the journalistic and, and poli- political minds work together. They, it, is, it was an ecosystem. Yes. Your speech is about they're not working together. Yes, that is because one has really gone through a t- terrific demise. So yes, there is a weakening of the system, and there is a weakening of the support structure that was true for political leadership, even though... Politicians often had this adversarial relationship with journalists. They relied on journalists. They relied on them for feedback from society. They relied on them for information, data, analysis, any number of other things. And we relied on them as a society to provide the basis and the nexus for our communal conversations that were, you know, sometimes hyperbolic, oftentimes, you know, just off the deep end, but for the most part, we're reasoned and intelligent. So, (laughs) and reason sometimes. And reason. This is Philosophy Monday, after all. We may as well talk about reason and logic. Are we here in the U.S. receiving the truth about world events, or is it all... And when I say locally, I mean locally in the place where the event has occurred or globally. Is it all politically colored? I I feel like when I read the news and I read something that happened in Ukraine or or somewhere else, I don't know whether this is the truth because I'm I'm fully aware uh, that this can happen here and that I could be being fed propaganda. How right. do we know? I'm not talking about fake news. I'm right. talking about uh, yeah. the truth. Being yeah. being able to get to facts on the ground in certain parts the of the world that are, what journalism that are reliable and that you can count on to make your decisions and to do a decent analysis on your daily basis. So it's a good question. In the case of some of these bigger stories, where there are Western journalists on the ground, Ukraine, for example, there's a fair number of Western journalists on the ground. We're able to collect enough 
to at least keep the information fairly um, accurate. Now, you're combating these other forces that I'm talking about, the Russian in particular in Ukraine, in Russia. Well, every every journalist has his own bias to some degree, but we also have our own perspectives, right? We often bring our American perspective to the, to the crisis in Ukraine. Um, most of us in the West agree that there is a Russian occupation in, the, in Ukraine. The Russians don't see it the same way. Um, and so when they are able to uh, have their news organizations combating questions of whether MH17, the flight that was coming over um, uh, Ukraine, was shot down by a Buk Russian missile, and they say, well, maybe it was, and then they immediately flood the zone on the news and the information zone by saying that maybe there were Westerners there, maybe it was a Ukrainian shot down, any number of things. Well, then it, it confuses the story, especially when they have this preponderance of news, uh, uh, of news capacities and individuals who are able to push those stories forward, not merely in the traditional channels, but also through the social media channels. What's more concerning about whether or not you are getting um, the real news not just about Ukraine, is that because of the pullback and the business collapse of the Western business model, we have fewer people around the world. So in areas that are not Ukraine, where there's not a hot war, or where there's not a, a superpower interest on a daily basis, you know, pick anywhere in Latin America, for example, you are not likely to be getting the type of news that you used to be able to get because we just don't have the bureaus there anymore. So who fills in that gap? Well, it's often these adversarial nations that we're talking about or these other junk news sources that are constantly fighting either on an ideological basis or on a misinformation, disinformation basis to try and get our mind share and get our, our um, attention in a way that forces us to sort of, in a non-analytical way, accept those created facts. Uh, so the question is, do we propagandize as well in the United States? So uh, the answer is partially yes and partially no, right? So we have had a tradition in the United States and in other countries as well of having institutions that um, like Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Voice of America, and others that whose role it was to perform the role of surrogate broadcasters in countries where they often don't have reliable news themselves. Those countries often refer to those as propaganda organs. Um, the charter for those institutions is much closer to the New York Times way of, of approaching news than it is to the RT or the CGTN uh, way of approaching news. Are we uh, uh, focusing on news that is relevant to that country? Yes. And is that news oftentimes um, not uh, supportive of a regime? Yes. That's the case in Iran, for example. It's the case in any number of countries where they have despicable regimes um, from my perspective and not from theirs. And so um, I'm going to go with the Western perspective on many of these. But, yeah, I, I think it's it's hard. I don't think it's a fair um, a fair comparison to look at these state broadcasters primarily in China and in Russia, and compare them to the type of work that has been done by the Americans in the past, even during the Cold War. The level of integrity and of journalistic tradition that was propounded and used in those institutions hews much closer to our domestic approach to news and, inf and information. It's just that they're 
audience was much more interested in the types of things that would sound like absolutely uh, from that nation's perspective, propaganda, propagandistic, from that leadership perspective as propaganda. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. A variation on, on that very same thing. Yes. Uh, I've had the opportunity to live and work in Asia for about five uh -huh. years and in Europe for a while. And I got used to world news. Yes. BBC. Yeah. <laughs> and there's all sorts of choices, but you had world news. Yes. And you really had a perspective of how we all glue together. Yes. I perceive right now this rush to nationalism is the counter of that. We are not paying attention to anything outside of here mm -hmm. unless it irritates us. Yeah. We need to know the other things that are going on that are not necessarily life-threatening or cataclysmic. Yeah. And where is the structure that in the United States to bring that to us so we don't get so myopic we think we are the world? Yeah. Because we're not. You're, you're absolutely right. And that really is part of the warning that I tried to, uh, to paint in my book because it is not there and it is going away. It is disappearing on a daily basis because our journalistic system is a market-based system. The opposition, our adversaries, are not using a business a a, a market-based system to support their news or information organs how about al jazeera yes it actually was a fairly decent world sure and uh, so the question is because you're not on microphone the question is on al jazeera so al jazeera is not a geopolitical player in any sense russia and china have geopolitical heft with uh, real strategic needs uh, in terms of, and some of them want to have hegemony in their regions, some of them want to be expansionist, some are irredentist. Al Jazeera is, came from a tiny little oil-rich state known as Qatar and um, was, a, was a pretty good news organization as long as you didn't have to say, as long as you said nothing about Qatar or, or any of the nations that were uh, allied with Qatar in any critical sense. Um, I would look at uh, that particular news organization and say, instead of it performing this sort of intelligence gathering diplomatic function and, and informing the function for policymaking and the like, I always thought of Al Jazeera as much more of a um, lobbying organization with a very solid sort of core of non-Qataris working within the organization, being given relatively free reign as long as it wasn't looking at the region, or if it was looking at the region, was looking at it from a Qatari's um, foreign policy perspective, whether it was in Yemen or Iran or in Syria or in Afghanistan or Iraq. And so uh, it was a regional player, but in the United States and elsewhere, I think it was much more of a lobbying organization to, to have some positive uh, orientation towards the state, towards their state. Yes. So given the um, decay of the business model that supports journalism, what type of um, words of encouragement would you provide uh, students who are currently in college to receive a journalism degree? Uh, how much longer do you have to go? Oh, <laughs> I have already graduated with a master's and I'm gainfully employed, but Great. I feel, I feel kind of horrible for, for students who are currently in school and, you know, what they hope to do. They really can't afford to eat. Yeah. Well, and that's true for many students, right? I mean, that, that has to do to some degree with the student debt burden that's being implied these 
these days. And it's not just in journalism they can't find jobs. It's elsewhere. But in journalism specifically, we're still going through the transition. We are not through the full transition. Uh, just in the last few weeks, we saw that Gatehouse Media, who many of you probably never heard of, now owns Gannett or is merged with Gannett. Um, the news organization I still work for is independent, but, you know, who knows? Um, it, the consolidation is fully underway. And so the newspaper side of the house is still going through its shakeout and its consolidation. On the broadcast side, well, I don't know. I mean, you tell me. Maybe there's something happening there that's allowing for more foreign corresponding. But they still are on air. There's still more channels. Uh, but they seem to be less and less focused on uh, news collection and more and more interested in in-studio uh, yelling. Uh, and so... Um, <laughs> So maybe some of these journalism students should also uh, go to theater school. That's right. Go to you become become performers of some sort. But uh, but that doesn't mean that the skills of a journalist are antiquated. In fact, they are even more important than they've ever been. And so, in the short run, I would say what has to happen for these students who are coming out, who are looking at how do they earn a living. There needs to be some entrepreneurial aspect to what it is they do. And the social media allow them various channels that they can develop. And we're seeing some creative things happening already where they're able to build audiences and, and create the type of foreign corresponding on an independent basis. What's lost, however, is the heft and the support of a large institution. So if anything had happened to me, for instance, when I was in the Soviet Union as a reporter, I knew that I had the full weight of the legal and, and financial resources of NBC and Mutual News to be able to support me. When you're one guy running oneguy.com and you happen to be in a country that is uh, dangerous with lots of folks running around with guns, and uh, they are accusing you of being a spy or of just not just they just don't like your ethnicity or your nationality or your religion. And they decide that maybe your head will be coming off soon. Well, then all you have is the moral suasion of the nation to try and uh, negotiate your way out of that. I say this. In so far as we have, uh, McClatchy has a freelancer who has been uh, imprisoned or at least has been missing for a number of years, a guy named Austin Tice. And Austin Tice is still gone. Um, every few weeks you'll read something like, today is a good day for Austin Tice to be returned. He was a freelancer. Um, had a number of freelance gigs, was really bright, great reporter, but we haven't heard from him in a number of years now. And his family is missing. So on the foreign corresponding side, that's a real danger. On the domestic side, well, you know, there's lots of stuff going on and you're relatively safe. So what I also think is lost, too, is mentorship. Yeah. I think um, when you're a Lone Ranger and you're Bob.com, you know, you don't have the same ability to learn from those who've been there, done that and have a T-shirt. And you don't get groomed. So you're kind of like an orphan. Um, and sometimes orphans misbehave badly because they don't have the right training. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. My first day on the job, at my first radio uh, job, uh, this grizzled old NBC correspondent uh, said to me, yeah, come here, Marcos. And I walk over to his desk and he kicks his desk and then he opens the drawer and he shows me his bottle of whiskey. And because he said that was the lubrication that kept the journalism going. Now, um, but then after we had our shot, he said to me, look, this is the trick to radio. You tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them it, and then you tell them what you told them. Now get out of here. <laughs> and so, uh, 
that was what uh, I was taught by Al Simon. And, um, and you're right, that level of mentorship uh, doesn't exist, but also the collegiality isn't there and the support network, not just institutional support network, but the support network of your colleagues. I had the good fortune of, at least when I was in the Soviet Union as a reporter working for one institution, there were two of us for NBC Mutual at the time. Uh, we had a sense of collegiality across the board because we were facing a fairly tough environment. So whether my colleagues at ABC or NBC or CBS uh, were in trouble, we all sort of rallied to their cause. Um, I think when you're less connected as we were, in part because we were forced to live in the same areas, we were forced to uh, to um, report under a very controlled uh, environment, we then bonded together to figure out how to support each other, both uh, physically and uh, and psychologically. Yeah. This is a subset of uh, a much bigger change, institutional change that's caused by the internet and a bunch of other uh, disruptive technologies over the last couple of decades. But I, I wonder what another part of the subset of the media change, uh, that the media has lost a lot of revenue sources, mm -hmm. the big media companies. Um, and as a result, politics is is a big player for them. I mean, the, the annual elections are, I mean, the elections every four years. Um, and I'm just wondering how much you thought that the that the money uh, drives their interest in keeping the horse race uh, of, of an election as close as possible, both between the Democrats and Republicans, but inside the parties, because it seems fairly clear that that you know the media will support somebody if they then are a possible uh, you know player to keep the election close, to keep it to keep it exciting and people tuning in and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Is that part of is that part of what you've watched or not? Well, look, we've seen so I think the perception up until recently, but it's still true for some of the larger institutions in journalism is that we are performing a public function, a, a public service. Mm -hmm. And I think that most journalists who are still engaged in the practice and certainly in the institutional practice of journalism still feel that that's the case. That's what drives them. That's it's a mission-driven type of profession. Having said that, however, there is uh, there are new metrics in the business world of journalism that um, that institutions are responding to, and that is the idea of clickbait and the idea of conflict and the idea that you need to have this horse race or that you need to um, make sure that you cover every absurd utterance from any leader uh, who happens to be in power. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and, 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 and it becomes a feedback loop, right? Because it's not just that someone says something outrageous or, you know, incredulous, but that in fact, then it gets reported. And then that attention feeds back to the individual who then makes this utterance and then it becomes more absurd. And so you have this, 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 uh, insanely um, uh, self-generating and regenerating system of, of, uh, of dealing oftentimes with the trivial. And um, it's in part driven by money, but it's also the new economics of what we call attention economics. Mm -hmm. And so when you can dominate that particular economic model by being the most outrageous, the most <laughs> um, egregious, in your performance or in your speech, then uh, then you are rewarded for that uh, as a result of the changing uh, 
media and, and because of our new social media realities. Uh, and, that, and it has, I think, less to do with institutional structures and, and, and the mission of journalism and more to do with the changing, uh, with the digitization, the changing nature of, uh, of domestic journalism. Now, I won't even touch, we're not talking about the international stuff, okay. which is what I usually look at, uh, especially when I look at the stuff for, that I've analyzed. But yes, I think that's, that's the case. Great. Well, we have time for one more question. And thank you, everyone, by the way. This is uh, really great. I love the questions. Uh, following on the topic of the funding model, yeah. um, you've mentioned how useful uh, news media is for governments projecting soft power and open source intelligence. Mm -hmm. I believe it's no longer the case, but for many years, the BBC World Service was funded directly by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Yes. Would a... And the Defence Ministry. Indeed. Yes. Um, wouldn't that sort of direct funding model be useful to backfill some of the changes in uh, where money in journalism is coming from? Or would that adversely affect both the adversarial relationship and uh, make those charges of being a foreign spy more credible? Yeah, I think the second part is the hard, the harder part to answer, right? Because I think anytime you have a direct relationship to the state, those charges are going to seem credible, certainly by the charging party. Um, the first part of your question, though, is really interesting. And I'm Curious, because I think the BBC has a fairly good reputation for the types of reporting that it's done overseas. It's always been in-depth. It seems to have, because of its structure, because it's a spread financial structure, it's not strictly uh, those ministries that are underwriting the World Service, but rather subscriptions and, and the like that are spread throughout the society. They've been able to maintain that firewall for the most part, between um, between the ministries or the government and the editorial Department of the BBC. There are cases where they failed, uh, but those are fewer uh, than the cases in which they've been successful. And, they, and for the most part, they really are the gold standard, I think. Uh, I think the, let me just touch on maybe models that could work, right? Because I think we have to think about this in the West. How do we fund responsible, intelligent, uh, pervasive Western journalism overseas. I think in the domestic sphere, we'll figure that out. But in the foreign world where we really have to think about these expenditures, we have to think about some of the things that we've done in the past to save journalism or to support journalism. You know, there have been cases here in San Francisco, for example, when the Chronicle and the Examiner were allowed to jointly operate. There was something called the JOA, the Joint Operating Agreement, which allowed them to have shared businesses so that they could then have effectively a monopoly over a market, but allowed them to then make the types of profit margins that that uh, allowed them to do the types of things like hiring uh, foreign correspondents and having bureaus. Um, we allowed tax, even to this day, we allow tax credits for magazines to mail their uh, to mail their product, well, you know, franking privileges. So they, so the first class mail you send is much more expensive than the heavy magazines that they put into the mail. So we have a tradition, and, and there are any number of other tax credits and the like that have existed that have never impinged on that firewall of editorial control and state subsidy. So I think some creative thinking about how do we get funding for these critically important institutions. Something recently happened in New Jersey, where uh, the state of New Jersey has actually just invested $5 million in local journalism, just at the state level, no strings attached, but there has to be local journalism to be able to cover the types of things that are no longer being covered at the local level for local governments and, for, and to provide the types of check on 
what we're all worried about, domestically at least, which is corrupting forces within our politics. When you, when you get rid of these resources, you have much more pressure and much more ability to do things that are less kosher. And so I think it's impingent on all of us, you know, to try and come up with ways and to actually support to the degree that we can means by which we can support this institutional structure that has served us so well for so many years, as annoying as it may seem at times, as loud as it may be, as, as, as much as politicians sometimes seem to hate it, it really serves our system because it remains, you know, the fourth estate. And it is what will check our government to the degree that we needed to check our government to, to check power to the degree that we needed to check power on a daily basis. So I think we can all work together on this, I, but I think it's going to take a lot of minds really focused on this and really being committed to returning these institutions to the former strength or at least to some level of strength so that they are able to perform these functions. Thank you. Thank you very much. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you.